And I think depending on what approach the election takes and what approach both sides take, then we'll see very different responses to gang crime. I think if if a much more law and order based campaign is launched to try and uh, counter gangs, I think we'll get short term successes with policing. But then it may, I think it runs the risk of neglecting perhaps a longer term solutions which fix the underlying reasons for gang crime. Hello and welcome to The Insight. I'm Michael McCabe, the founder and CEO of Intelligence Fusion. I'm joined by Max Taylor and Vincent Ferrier, our senior analysts. Um, if you like our content, like, share and subscribe. In this episode, we're discussing the gangs of London. This was an in-depth research project that we've conducted. And what we wanted to do to sort of make this slightly different was just to explain from an intelligence perspective how we've actually um, done the project. So we, of course, followed the intelligence cycle, which is direction, collection, processing, and then dissemination. So from a direction perspective, um, I created the intelligence collection plan as part of this project. I set the intelligence requirements. So um, for us, it was described the gang situation in London. And then we broke it down into multiple sub-questions with which were the actual information requirements themselves. So it included questions like, what are the names of the gangs? Where do they operate? What criminal activities do they engage in? And so on. Um, as part of the direction process, what we've always got to do is actually establish what are the areas of intelligence requirements. So we actually based it on um, geographical features. So we used the River Thames as an example, just split London up into multiple different regions. And then I assigned the collection to different members of our analytical team to actually gather information regarding this. Um, from a processing perspective, the first things that we had to do were do things like um, collate the names of the gangs in a list, um, as well as matching the names. And that was a key issue for us because some of the gangs have just multiple different names, um, as well as accurately geolocating where the gangs were based. Um, there was a really um, useful Reddit post from a, a user called um, ZamNem17, um, who produced a really interesting map regarding where the gangs of London um, are actually situated, which formed probably the, um, the basis of the map that we actually produced. Um, and a key part was kind of cross-referencing different gang names, looking at things like who were the rivals, who were their enemies. Um, and then we kind of went through the whole collection process and we faced the usual issues of, um, one, just how current is the information regarding the gangs, which is often a key issue which we find when we're actually researching groups because things can change so quickly, um, as well as sourcing the information as well. So I think the majority of the collections where I got information from was news articles, but it was also looking at things like social media posts as well. Um, and there was quite few studies, which I was quite surprised. I think we found two or three actual studies regarding gangs of London. Um, but it's probably kind of worth just mentioning the whole drill aspect because it's really key to it. So just to kind of walk you through sort of an evolution of gangs in London, because I think it's worth just kind of touching on the history of gangs within London. So um, you know, gang crime within the UK is prevalent across all major cities. However, it's probably more prevalent in places like um, London, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, as well as Glasgow. Um, and what was interesting kind of doing the research as part of this project is that in the early 2000s, you so, sort of had a, a migration of some of the, um, the gang culture of the US. You had sort of blood and crips gangs, which sort of formed as part of that. Um, it was interesting sort of researching how far back gangs um, go in the UK. And, and around sort of the um, 1888, I found a, a, a news article and it was actually describing the gang structure of London at the time. And they mentioned nine gang names. So you had the Marleybone gang, the Fitzroy Place gang, the Monkey Parade gang, the Black gang, the New Cut gang, the Green Gate gang, the Prince Arthur gang, the Gang of Roughs and the Jovial 32. Um, you know, these aren't 
some of the gangs names that you see nowadays. Um, However, the Black Gang does still exist. Um, So you have the Chestnut Estate Gang, which are also known as the Black Gang. So even some of the the names historically, you know, it's not a a direct evolution. It's not the same gang, but it's kind of retaining that sort of um, uh, naming. Mm. Um, And I think that was a key thing that we probably should discuss is just the whole naming convention regarding gangs in the UK. So you just want to kind of run us through that, Max? Yeah, so I found uh, a lot of the gangs were largely uh, named depending on the postcode they're from. So, for example, if they're from the E6 area of East London, they just call themselves Sixth or just E6. But they often would have another name as well, and that name is normally the estate or the building which they which they centre around or which they're from. So, for example, um, Chad Green or or something along, or Thatch House Thugs. So, a lot of these gangs have multiple names, as you said. So, it was at times quite tricky to think. Uh, so, you'd be looking at a report about. Or a, a a source just saying that the sixth gang, and you, you have to start, you have to familiarise yourself with these gang names and start realising that each gang really had about three or four names. And then within that, there was also ways that they were referred to colloquially in in discourse online as well. So it was a uh, was particularly tricky, especially when you're approaching the subject from I guess from from zero. You know, it's not like we had a we'd been doing this before. We came straight into this from from a very base level knowledge. So it was uh, it, we had to familiarise familiarise ourselves very quick with the quite fluid way that they refer to each other, I think. I don't know if you guys found the same with your respective well, regions. Yeah, well, and I think there's some, uh, you get gang names like the Peckin Boys or the Gutter Boys, but then subsets within those uh, who oftentimes then become ind- independent mm. gangs and things like that. So it's kind of familiarizing yourself with the umbrella kind of gang and then the uh, set different sets of those gangs who sometimes then uh, go off on their own. Uh, so just keeping in mind uh, those as well and those connections and links. I think one thing that we were quite um, conscious about as we were doing the research is the whole cultural aspect of it. So, you know, gangs of the 70s were sometimes based around punk music, whereas now it seems to be drill is quite, um, you know, key to the gangs that we were actually researching and finding information from. I mean, drill originated in Chicago in the 2010s, um, and what it's described as is a, a grittier style which had emerged in South London, draws on grime and other genres. Um, Radio 1 DJ Tim Westwood has promoted the genre um, and hosted drill videos on his YouTube channel. Um, and drill lyrics usually, usually glorify violence and gang culture, and some feuding gangs have actually recorded diss tracks insulting each other online as an incitement to um, tit-for-tat violence. And the music that's been blamed in part um, for a surge in murders um, within London and Scotland Yard has actually tried to prevent drill gigs and asked YouTube to take down more than 50 videos that it says promote gang violence. So what we were conscious about was the gangs that we really know a lot about are the ones who actually engage within the drill scene itself. Mm. Um, So, you know, they're very vocal about their activities, about who they're fighting with, and they make claims about um, attacks that they've conducted against each other. What we're conscious about is that what about those gangs who don't actually engage within the drill culture? Exactly, and some some of those gangs that don't engage in that culture could be the more violent ones or the ones that are dealing with certain criminal enterprises that the ones engaged in drill videos aren't. Uh, so, that, yeah, like you said, it's something uh, to be conscious about and, and one of the intelligence gaps uh, that's interested to look th- further into. I think I found with drill a lot as well is that uh, drill music in general is about acts of, acts of violence, I guess. It's not, not necessarily about it, but it's a large part of your music. So a lot of the time they're talking about events which did happen or they're, you know, they're making threats about how how legitimate these threats are as well. It's, it's hard to gauge sometimes. It's, is this just a threat for the sake of the song or is this a genuine threat and a vet, therefore a genuine uh, threat warning about an uh, upcoming uh, incident of sorts? And again, it's, it's very hard to gauge, especially if you're coming at it from sort of a base level knowledge, if you're not 100% familiar with it. So it took a lot of familiarisation to really, I guess, uh, sort of appreciate 
what was significant within these videos and what was just simply just empty threats. Yeah, I think like you said, yeah, it's it's hard to kind of corroborate what uh, actions they say they've taken mm. uh, actually happen because uh, a lot of these videos you see kind of scoreboard videos between two rival uh, gangs and seeing what and them describing kind of a, or a third party describing all the acts that have taken place and it's hard sometimes to corroborate because the names being used as who committed what uh, it's aliases so it's it's hard to know uh, what the actual per, uh, person's name is uh, and and kind of finding that in news articles uh, and it's it's something that's not always reported either so uh, it's quite difficult in that sense what do we kind of find from a, a gang structure perspective when we kind of look at London? What do you mean in terms of structure, in terms of within gangs, uh, in terms of leadership? and? Yeah, I mean, you know, from my research, what I found essentially was you essentially have um, street gangs, um, the ones who are more likely to engage within the, the drill music scene. But then sort of it seems above that you've got sort of supplier gangs. Um, generally um, speaking, they were kind of, seem to be from sort of Turkish or perhaps Balkans um, linked groups um, and you're essentially um, having uh, things like heroin was coming from Afghanistan as well as um, um, marijuana as well you had cocaine which was coming from South America which was coming through these gangs into Europe and then it was being dealt by the street gangs mm-hmm. and this for me there was a massive intelligence gap there from the actual supplier side because they're not very um, vocal about what they do they don't mm. engage really in the drill scene i was surprised that there was actually one albanian gang who engaged in the drill scene but generally it's generally black gangs who are the ones who are actually doing the, the drill music videos so there was a, a real big intelligence gap there from a structural perspective um in my research i mean what did you find max yeah i completely agree i find the ones that were notoriously a bit more uh, active in the criminal world rather than the music world were the ones that kept themselves to themselves so uh, and also with drill music as a whole there's a lot of drill groups that perhaps have been involved in criminal activity of some sort but to classify that drill group as a criminal gang would be a bit of a stretch and vice versa there's a lot of criminal groups that are involved in dual music so it's hard to get this crossover with 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 dual music in particular with uh, is this group actually a violent criminal group is this a dangerous criminal group but as you said a lot of the ones that have been notoriously involved in major criminal events typically kept their kept themselves a bit more to themselves online they were a bit more guarded with what, what was released and i found a lot of the references to these groups such as the marley strip was one example actually notoriously a very uh, very powerful gang but that their most of the references to them on social media and online in general was uh, sort of anecdotal evidence or it was uh, almost a uh, word of mouth so there's very little first uh, primary source information coming from this gang itself or at least not easily available at least mm-hmm. and I, I agree with max in terms of uh, it's kind of always so hard to know uh, if they're a gang or if they're just a drill uh, group and you, you see that and sometimes getting reference to articles where uh, someone who's been associated with that, uh, with one of the one of the groups, one of the gangs, uh, now is kind of basically a more more famous musician. So then it's hard to know where the the line stops of being a gang mm. member to just being a drill artist. Um, so yeah, so I think that's one of the difficulties uh, when when doing this research is kind of knowing what's legitimate, what's not legitimate, and who's who, and uh, what what their role actually is. Because I think uh, in probably some of the videos. Uh, so, some people that appear in the videos aren't particularly members of the gangs. They might just be there for the video. Uh, and we've seen that with sometimes uh, individuals getting attacked or stabbed by other gangs because they've appeared in that video. And so they're immediately associated with that gang when maybe they don't actually have a certain role in there. Mm. Uh, so I think it, it, it's just a constant kind of having to research and having to kind of investigate further uh, into these videos. And it makes it difficult. 
I mean, historically, there was this talk about these postcode wars. Is that still a thing? Are they still engaging in these postcode wars between gangs? I, th- I think the reason the postcode wars existed was because it was essentially these gangs would use their postcode area as their territory, and not often just to sell drugs. And I think as long as that, as long as these postcodes exist, and as long as gangs need territory to sell drugs, and yes, I do think postcode wars will exist. However, I find a lot of the rivalries between gangs weren't simply because they were from a different postcode. It was normally, it was, sometimes it was along personal relationships. So it was a dispute between members from two different gangs who happened to be from different postcodes or sometimes it was just straight straight down to territory dog, drugs dealing and other activity so it's these, i think these postcode wars do exist I, I think perhaps not as common as they used to be there was a lot made out of this i think in the early 2000s perhaps uh, about our postcode wars in london and but then i did notice a lot of these gangs do still identify themselves along postcode lines so uh, a gang from the e6 area refers to itself as the sixth so it still is an important part of their identity even if it's just in the name yeah. So it's certainly still present, I think, in the in the scene as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I think you see that in the naming convention. It's the same with Southeast London gangs, mm. with kind of associating their, their postcodes to their gang name. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned before um, sort of umbrella gangs. Mm-hmm. You know, how is that sort of working within London? You know, how many sort of umbrella gangs are there? Do we know sort of from a structural perspective how and why they operate together? And, you know, are they successful by being umbrella gangs? I think some some of them started out because they were quite close to each other. So uh, several postcodes or several tower blocks uh, kind of working together, uh, not necessarily uh, as a cohesive unit, but if, if outsiders would come in, then they'd act as a group to push them out. Uh, but then in terms of kind of relationship, it, it's hard uh, to kind of know how many, how many they are. Um, but yeah, like I think, like I said earlier, it's kind of basic. A lot of them have broken up since um, probably early two thousands, mid two thousands, uh, just with kind of older leaders either jailed uh, or kind of out of that life. Then uh, kind of younger members create kind of their own subsets of those, and then evolve into kind of independent gangs. Um, so it's it's hard to know. You still hear kind of umbrella terms being used, uh, but it's hard to know whether they act as a cohesive unit. Uh, for a lot of things or not yeah and that was an interesting thing that i found was you know you will have a gang um who is fairly prominent however with a police operation and they're taking out the leadership that gang then essentially becomes defunct and then you have um perhaps a a change in name and so there's one gang in particular with their name um, and i can't think of it at the moment but they were engaging in the drill music and because they were then banned um via the metropolitan police um from actually producing these music videos online they then change their name just to um kind of get around that and actually do music under a different brand essentially yeah and i think it's also interesting to see how some uh new gangs come up and one thing i noticed was that sometimes uh, you get development projects by the councils uh kind of demolishing certain tower blocks to refurbish the area and so those people move get moved to other uh, estates and and those youths then create a new uh, a new gang in those areas. Uh, so then the old gang that was at uh, at that area no longer exists and a new one pops up. So it's interesting to see how kind of uh, kind of economic aspects and development uh, by, by the councils uh, affects uh, territory and mm-hmm. movement of, of gangs and, and where they end up. Mm-hmm. I mean, from um, looking at the, the gangs, what is making some gangs more successful than others? Because when I was looking at groups like the Mali Strip, um, and sort of reading anecdotal um, reports, it was basically saying that 
because they are very ruthless in how they operate, they are essentially punch, pushing certain other gangs out of the areas. Did you find other kind of aspects to this as to why some gangs are more successful than others? I certainly think a, willing to, a willingness to use force. Like all the gangs have the ability to use force. They have the capacity. They have bladed weapons and some of them have firearms. But a willingness to use said force to throw your weight around with uh, in order to get what you want, I think, is a... Uh, essentially is what defines a gang as uh, more successful because I think Miley Strip, uh, the, as you are saying about coalitions of gangs earlier, there's a lot of gangs came together to try and oppose Miley Strip as they, as they grew into a much larger gang. And uh, Miley Strip was still able to continue to exist and actually thrived as a result. And I think Miley Strip is also known for being ruthless. And I think this, uh, this association with Miley Strip and their willingness to use force to get what they want, I think has, I imagine it's been quite a large part of their, of their success, I guess, on the gang scene itself. So I think, uh, I'm sure there's other reasons other than just willingness to use force, such as you know, operational security, so how much they uh, publish about themselves, how easy they are to for the police to monitor and stuff like that. But I personally, I found that uh, group's ruthlessness, ruthlessness, it's a hard word to say, ruthlessness, I found that was the, um, I've personally thought, a bit of a pivotal factor in what defines whether a group has has sort of broken out from this very much a street level to a much broader mm-hmm. multi-group. What about just sort of innovation? And I'm thinking about county lines um, at this time. You know, what drove county lines to occur? And do we know how many gangs are engaging in it and why they're doing it and where they're actually operating? I think kind of probably of a saturation of a market, of a drugs market in the U- in London, uh, probably pushed uh, certain gangs to then uh, cross uh, county lines and, and operate uh, elsewhere just to try to uh, increase their business in the criminal enterprise. Because... Um, yeah, when you look at the map um, of kind of that we put together of the gangs of London, there's quite a, quite a quantity uh, there. Um, so I think when you have that many trying to fight each other over control uh, of certain uh, of a drug business or of a criminal enterprises, it becomes yeah saturated. So you have to look elsewhere to to make money. Mm-hmm. Imagine these gangs, which are used to a certain level of violence from the London gang scene as well. I imagine they would find it quite easy to, uh, I guess, steamroll gangs from uh, smaller towns, which perhaps are much smaller, involved in much uh, lower level criminal activity. So when these gangs do eventually migrate out into the towns surrounding London or other other major cities, I suspect that their their that their, their, the violence of the London gang scene being a bit higher than that in sort of uh, rural England or at least in provincial towns would allow these London gangs to be a bit more ruthless i guess as we we're saying earlier by their ability and their willingness to use force as these london gangs have shown generally they are willing to use force so i, I suspect when they go into these towns they they're, they're bigger force they're very well organized so when they develop these county lines if they do ever decide to try and expand outside of london i, I suspect they have a bit of an advantage there mm-hmm. i think probably the, in terms of policing it's probably there's probably ease of uh, operation in in those types of towns rather than london mm-hmm. uh, where the police force probably plays a greater role in in encountering that um so it, like they you often go across county lines and take over a local property to then run as a drug then mm. uh, another place to operate uh, using vulnerable people youths and, and others uh, to kind of deal drugs in those areas um so yeah the COVID aspect of it is quite interesting because it seems like with COVID you've had the inability to have run nightclubs where drugs are traditionally dealt so you've then had street parties that have been popping up which, from what I've been reading, in part have been actually arranged by organised criminals to actually create events and to actually sell drugs. What do we think the impact of COVID is having on the gang um, environment in London and what impact is it going to have going forward as we see an economic impact of, of COVID? What, what's that gonna, how is that going to affect gangs in London? Well, I think 
not just in London, but we've seen it elsewhere in the world. But I think in terms of London, you the restriction of movements, the restriction, like you said, of, of businesses operating to where they're unable to then deal drugs in nightclubs and things of that regards might move uh, these these gangs uh, to find new ways to, to, to gain income, whether that be robberies uh, or thefts from businesses uh, and the like. Um, it, it, they'll need to evolve themselves uh, in order to survive uh, and, and make money if, if drug is no longer kind of uh, being able to to bring in the same uh, income that it was pre-COVID. Uh, and it's something that we've seen across the world in other countries where criminals have had to adapt uh, their criminal enterprises uh, during this time in order to stay funded. With that said, I think just to scrutinise our point here a little bit as well, I've, you were saying COVID sort of reduced almost the demand for drugs. I think the demand for drugs is still there. I don't think, as people are in lockdown, people haven't stopped consuming drugs. You know, they, Their demand is still at the same level. It's just, I think they just have to find new ways to disseminate these drugs. Yeah. And as you said, the street parties are one way. So I think perhaps we see more creative ways or just more general street dealing because a lot of these drugs are, these, a lot of these gangs are just involved in, in your, your general, general street dealing. But uh, especially now as lockdown starts to be reduced, I, 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 would, I would hesitate to look too far into the impact of COVID on the actual drug dealing scene itself. But with that said, it's, it's plausible that they would have to find new, new methods such as the parties that you're talking about and some of which have been affiliated with, with gang groups. So certainly from a policing perspective, I think it poses a new challenge because the, the typical means of selling drugs perhaps have changed as a result of COVID, but not perhaps as much as we think because demand has remained the same. Mm-hmm. I think maybe having to be more covert, so you, new means to deal drugs. Mm. So we've seen uh, in France uh, when they had their lockdown and seeing drug dealers basically having the paper slip saying, I'm going to the grocery store or mm. posing as delivery drivers who were still able to operate and then using the, those means to be able to uh, basically deliver the drugs to the, yeah, straight yeah. to the customer in that sense. Um, so it could be something that, that we see in London as well. Traditionally, you guys look at South America and Asia. Is there any... Um, sort of links that you found as researching this project that kind of feed back into your own regions, perhaps from a drug supply perspective? Um, I've always been quite aware of Afghanistan and also uh, Southeast Asia being major hubs for drugs production. And Afghanistan in particular, uh, a lot of drugs are coming from Afghanistan into Europe. But the I've also found in from this, the route taken from Afghanistan to Europe goes through so many countries. It can either go up through Central Asia, through Russia, and then through Europe, or even through Iran, through uh, through the Caucasus region into Europe from there. So I found these routes are so long and convoluted that by the time I do reach the UK, there's been so many different uh, so many different actors in this chain. It is very hard to track. And it's, it's an incredibly complex operation, especially from an international policing perspective. Mm. It's crossing so many different um, areas of authority that tracking these chains of, of, of trafficking is, is very, very difficult. So I think, yes, I've noticed it was certainly uh, references to Asian countries being the source of the drug itself, but I always found the most recent country the job has come from really is where you have to start starting from Afghanistan and trying to find the links to the UK is one way of doing it. But I, I worry by doing so, I was starting to to miss perhaps some of the links and what is a very important and very long chain of of drugs production and trafficking into the UK. Yeah, and I think in, in regards to cocaine, um, well, the, the three drug uh, cocaine producing countries are in South America with Bolivia, Peru and Colombia. Uh, and what we see is that a lot of these, uh, the cocaine goes through um, oftentimes uh, Brazil, uh, where uh, the Port of Santos, which is probably the busiest port in the country, uh, you see uh, a lot of seizures of uh, cocaine uh, from a few hundred kilos to a couple tons, um, and oftentimes in containers uh, destined for Rotterdam um, or Hamburg or Ant- Antwerp in Belgium. Um, so that's one way for it to get to, to Europe. And there's been links between 
the PCC, which is the Primeiro Comando da Capital uh, in Brazil, which is one of the uh, largest criminal uh, factions in the country, who also operate in Paraguay, Bolivia, and other countries to get the drugs uh, to Brazil. And there's been links with them and the Androgheta uh, Mafia, the Italian Mafia, uh, in order to uh, move uh, the cocaine from the Port of Santos to European ports. So there's a sort of link with uh, the Italian Mafia there, um, which then they kind of uh, have lost it from there uh, on how it gets to, to the UK. Uh, but in terms of getting it to Europe in bulk, uh, that's that's one way I've seen it. And then you do also get uh, individuals um, moving uh, drugs via airports, um, and not just through to Europe, but also uh, to Africa as well. Uh, so those links um, in regards to the cocaine uh, trafficking uh, from South America to London is kind of via the, those groups. Uh, but it is hard, like Max said, it's kind of hard then to kind of see once it gets to the ports in, in Europe. Uh, how it gets to the UK and other distribution points, it, it, it's kind of, it's become difficult in that regards, but it's kind of one of the intelligence gaps and something to look further. You mentioned from an Afghanistan perspective that this distribution network and transit points, which seem to focus around, especially Pakistan and Turkey, mm. but also we've looked historically at projects where we've monitored things like um, weapons trafficking, drug trafficking, which has gone through a, a fairly well-trodden route in the Balkans. So just it doesn't surprise me from a supplier perspective, the key gangs that are involved in it are either from the Balkans or from Turkey. What I did find interesting was the gangs in the Balkans who were also involved in the cocaine side of it as well. They seem to have networks or links to drug gangs in South America to actually bring cocaine in as well. Yeah. Well, and there's... Like, there's while the main entry points seem to be um, the ports of Rotterdam, uh, Antwerp, and Hamburg, there's been uh, seizures before made, I think, in Romania um, and, and kind of southern uh, Europe as well, and some in the Balkans. So though that can also be the links as well there. Um, but I think when, when you see the articles of seizures of uh, 500 kilos, uh, two tons of cocaine, uh, they tend to be containers heading towards Belgium, uh, Amsterdam, um, the Netherlands and uh, Germany. Um, so, yeah. And there's a bit of a two way flow as well, from what I found in my research, is that yes, drugs come via the Balkans towards places like Holland, but also um, things like amphetamines go back towards the Balkans. There's a, a sort of a, a relationship there in terms of drugs going in two different directions. But then also, there's I've seen multiple reports of. Uh, lorries coming from places like the Netherlands through the channel that have been intercepted, either carrying um, flowers from Holland as an example, and drugs have been hidden in the shipments, but also weapons as well coming in the shipments as well. Um, So just sort of moving the conversation on a bit further, what do we think is the the impact, the so what factor of of gangs in London? Um, And if we just kind of take it from a political perspective initially, so... At the moment, Sadiq Khan is London mayor, but you have the Conservative candidate, Sean Bailey, who's really pushing law and order. That's his real theme for London. Um, And he's talking a lot about the middle-class use of drugs and its funding of gang violence. And he sort of comments on the whole political aspect of of gangs and and what impact that's going to have going forward. I think Sean Bailey will... It's going to be a a real big tick for him from a a voter perspective regarding gangs really pushing this issue. I think we'll see uh, the reports of these gang, gang violence gaining substantially more attention. So it's again, it's important to see in context, whether it's a normal, whether it's just being politicised and being blown out of proportion a little bit. But yeah, I think um, 
with with gangs now being explicitly relate, uh, referred to in political campaigns for mayor of London, and certainly yes, it's going to be a, a it's going to be a big part of it. But one thing I've actually found was the gangs themselves are involved in very little collateral damage. A lot of the actual violence itself is between themselves, and a lot of people therefore sometimes dismiss it as being quite a minor issue because the violence is largely carried out between gang members, and therefore can be sort of left in the shadows a little bit. But you've got to remember with these gangs, what the, the reasons that they that they are deemed as a threat to in a, in a political realm is because of the people they draw in. They're drawing in youths who perhaps have been excluded from schools or just aren't from, who have just had less opportunities than others. So it's not so much the violence that they're committing; it's also who they're drawing in, the number of people that are drawing in. And if these gangs are allowed to thrive and they are allowed to grow into large, um, you know, multi-set gangs. And they're just going to keep bringing in more and more people. We're going to see more and more percentage of people being involved in these gangs and being taken away from society itself. So, yeah, I think um, I think there's going to be a lot of politicization of the reports. But again, as we found from this, it's just so important to see it in context, particularly around election time, when every single incident is going to be heavily featured in the media. Well, I think they can also use uh, gangs as an opportunity to criticize other issues happening. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned exclusion from schools and things like that. So then it becomes here's the problem with gangs and as a, my political campaign being I'm all about law and, or, law and order, but then uh, I also want to address the root causes of uh, gangs uh, because the opposition candidate has failed mm. in that regard. So things like school funding, uh, funding of councils uh, in the areas where gangs are, job opportunities for youths. Uh, so kind of addressing that and, using gangs as a means uh, to an end uh, to in terms of describing that and the failures of the opposition um, because ultimately gangs are a kind of a cause uh, from those root causes. I think an interesting point. It's all well and good highlighting the threat of gangs as a politician, but then you've got to look, I guess, at how the parties and the individuals want to address, as you said, the gang yeah. problem. Do they want to just address it purely via law and order and via police or do are they looking more at a, uh, a long-term strategy, as you said, such as education, reforms, whatever it may be. And I think depending on what approach the election takes and what approach both sides take, then we'll see very different responses to gang crime. I think if if a much more law and order-based campaign is launched to try and uh, counter gangs, I think we'll get short-term successes with policing, but then it may, I think it runs the risk of neglecting perhaps a longer-term solutions which fix the underlying reasons for gang crime. And I think the focus often probably goes just towards gangs and other root causes because mm. ultimately it comes down to funding mm. and it's likely cheaper to go with a law and order approach than to actually spend the money addressing the root causes. Yeah. Um, so I think it... it yeah, it's okay. that's why it gets politicized so much, probably. What are the root causes that you found? I think there's 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 many, and it completely depends on the individual. But I think to to generalize quite loosely, I put, I think lack of opportunities, economic uh, disadvantage, and then there's more this uh, education as well. So uh, we've sp- spoken briefly already about kids in education. Kids that are going to get excluded at school are then much more likely to start the snowball effect as they start to be uh, drawn in by the gravitational pull of. Uh, of these gangs, but I guess you've got to see it in push and pull factors. So the push factors are what forces people away from trying to pursue uh, a normal job, you know, try and be part of society. And the pull factors of gangs are a lot of money. These these kids can earn huge amounts of money from selling drugs or doing whatever it may be. And also... Um, a sense of belonging. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think that's, a really, that's actually a really good point, I think. So you've got the pull factors of the gangs in combination with the push factors of just having simply no opportunities, no, no chances to thrive, no chance to actually join society it's, itself and thrive so it's with that in mind i think these two factors are just 
constantly pulling, especially young kids, away from and into the gangs. Yeah, I mean, poverty and, and inequality seem to be really key trends surrounding gangs and the worries with COVID-19 and the, the economic impact of COVID-19 is that that is going to be a, a pull factor towards mm. gangs, especially, and you can see why from a, a drill perspective, as part of their videos, they show this lifestyle of these fantastic cars, lots of money, women, all these sorts of things, and that then becomes a pull to the gangs. Well, I think that's where we see also kind of uh, links with county lines and why we're using vulnerable individuals to deal drugs because i think when we look at the uk probably the economic center is london maybe a few other big cities but those areas so where there's likely more neglect in uh, more rural areas to where uh, it's easier drawing uh, vulnerable children who are easily influenced mm. and can be used uh, by the gangs uh, to perpetrate uh, crime i was reading th through some county reports regarding gangs and uh, the reason why they thrive and, and part of it was due to uh, family and close relationships and the impact of things like poor parental supervision, harsh and inconsistent discipline, disrupted family home life, um, unemployment, uh, these sorts of things which again with COVID, with the economic impact of COVID and a recession, you know, a recession isn't just a short-term event, it has effects that last for decades and these I think again are going to have an impact on families and again are just going to be you know, factors that are going to see an increase in, in gang crime um i do think from a political perspective especially with county lines with so much drug dealing that's going on from out of london i'm sure london is going to come under pressure from the counties to mm. do something about it because there's a lot of this that's actually going on it's having negative impacts on security and crime within these regions as well so from a business perspective how do we feel that gang crime is, is one, having an impact on businesses operating in London at the moment? And how do we think that's going to change going forward? And the key one that I'm kind of thinking about is we've already mentioned that there is a, um, a, uh, a demand issue within London. So that's why they're kind of going towards county lines. But also with that lack of demand, what we'll probably see is some sort of change towards uh, normal criminality of just you know, robbery, thieving, um, you know, other aspects of criminality and perhaps targeting businesses. So from a business perspective, what impact do we think getting gangs of London are going to have uh, or are having at the moment? Well, I think it's a kind of can be well done in, in a way to just an increase in insecurity in, in, in certain areas. And so when you're having, um, while at the moment, sometimes it might seem contained to certain areas, if it does spread out of those tower blocks, of those uh, certain postcodes into more affluent areas or where just even in businesses in those areas are affected when there's conflict on the street, uh, when they're targeting each other in a business. Uh, there's been uh, instances where there's uh, shootings have targeted individuals who were inside a shop and then that damages a shop that puts a shop out of business for a while and even uh, can injure or kill other people who were in that shop. So I think the increase in insecurity that these gangs bring and especially if they move uh, or evolve from drug dealing to other types of criminality uh, will definitely have an impact on, on businesses in that sense. I mean, what about from sort of a civil unrest perspective? And the reason why I ask that is um, the Mark Duggan case, where Mark Duggan was um, shot and killed by police officers, which led to the London riots, which I think was in 2011 at yep. the time. Mm. Um, obviously, at the moment with the um, what happened in the US, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I think the worry from a policing perspective is that they make one mistake and we have the um, risk of another um, civil unrest like we saw with the London riots. And I think that is a very um, 
significant potential that could happen in the coming months, especially, again, kind of bringing it back to COVID-19 and just how mentally it's had an impact on people, um, but also, again, coming back to the economic issue, if there was to be some sort of incident involving Metropolitan Police, um, perhaps killing a drug member, a drug gang member, um, could we then see significant civil unrest um, off the back of it? I think it's possible because I think there's there's been articles uh, where uh, individuals from certain gangs were arrested during and charged for uh, acts of criminality during the during the riots in 2011. So uh, I think it, it definitely could play a factor, particularly uh, seeing kind of the social and political um, situation in the world at the moment. I think a conservative-led law and order campaign, which focuses largely on police as well, would only serve to distance, uh, to drive a wedge between what is already quite a class divided society at times. I think so. A conservative-backed uh, law and order campaign, any as you said, any mistake in that would instantly be politicised quite highly. It would be it would be framed as uh, out, quite out of touch Conservative Party, perhaps dealing with dealing with uh, working class areas with a very heavy hand. And uh, so, yeah, I can I can see this being quite a divisive uh, uh, area going forwards in any incident, any police incident. Uh, regardless of what happens in it, I think any police incident is going to have to be, every police operation is going to have to carry it out with not just uh, thought about what's the tactical level on the ground, but also the political objective in mind. So if the police operation isn't going to support the political objective, I think there's a very difficult relationship here between strategy and tactics from a policing perspective. And I think if a, a pure law and order campaign which just focuses on arrests and crushing gangs rather than the, the root causes of it, I think runs a risk of making things worse because all these arrests whilst they may be arresting gang leaders if it's if it's causing uh, bad feelings among people in these areas then it's not really serving a purpose thanks that max so i'll just summarize what we've spoken about today we talked about the intelligence principles by which we actually went about doing this project and where it um, serves as an advantage for us is that we've now been able to actually map out the different factions within London. So from a, an intelligence platform perspective, when we actually see an incident that occurs within a specific neighbourhood, we can then assess and attribute it to which gangs are actually involved and the reason why that actual incident occurred. Um, we discussed things like the evolution of gangs in London, the naming conventions, the structure, drug flow, and then a little bit of conversation about the actual so what aspect of it. So how is things going to change going forward from a gang perspective, but also what impact it's going to have on things like business. There are a lot of intelligence gaps for us, and this is a project that we'll be continuing. Please, um, if you like our content, like, share and subscribe, and we'll be back for another episode of The Insight soon. Thank you.